All right, we are back for our third and final segment. This is the point in the show where we often will do obituaries. So we will do one on today's program relating to the passing of scientist Imre Friedman. Dr. Friedman's specialty was extreme microbiology, which he began in the 1950s at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. His research was related to a topic which we find most interesting, exobiology and the possibility of life on Mars. Imre Friedman was very interested in the ALH84001 meteorite, which has been identified as coming from the surface of Mars. Of course, uh, this is still very controversial, but some do believe that some of the crystals found inside of that, um, that particular meteorite can only have been formed by an organic process. Would appear to be mic possibly microfossils, well, are still the subject of much controversy. But uh, Imre Friedman in 1996 uh, was involved with that. He was also involved in the search for, as we say, life in the most daunting places possible. The obituary in The Economist magazine noted that he found organisms um, under the stony floor of deserts like the Negev in Israel, the Gobi in Mongolia, and the Atacama in South America. He also uh, spent a lot of time in the dry valleys of Antarctica. He found blue-green algae living inside of rocks and labeled them cryptoendoliths, meaning hiders in rocks. The truth is, uh, for years, the scientific world was pretty indifferent to his studies of, uh, of these uh, obscure organisms, but uh, fame engulfed him in 1978, not long after the first Viking landers went on Mars. NASA had uh, disappointingly concluded the planet's soil was sterile. Dr. Friedman believed that uh, bacteria could survive in terrain almost as hostile as Mars, and uh, over the past decades he has been proven right again and again. Noted The Economist, Mr. Friedman himself always felt a peculiar tenderness for his cryptoendoliths. Always hungry, always too cold in this gray zone. In human terms, he said, you could compare them to the most miserably living generations of pariahs in India. They are born, they live, and they die in the gutter. Noted the magazine, like pariahs or like him, when, as a Jew growing up in Budapest, he was debarred from the university, forced into a labor camp, driven into a life of hiding from both Germans and Russians bent on killing him, as though he was the most contemptible form of life himself. It is indeed interesting to note that he was originally a student of seaweed, who had the outlandish idea that he might find single-celled versions of seaweed in the desert. And he did. Under the limestone surface of the Negev Desert, a greenish layer like copper compounds turned out to be algae, alive. Imre Friedman, extreme microbiologist, died June 11th, age 85. We suspect that when we finally do get to Mars with the proper equipment, we may find living things. There's a lot of pretty good science pointing in that direction. Of course, we need to get off our butts and send some probes out to the Red Planet to see what we can find instead of financing crazy foreign wars. But um, we'll have more to say about that, that latter subject uh, in a moment. This does remind me of an article in, uh, in New Scientist magazine uh, last month, June 9th issue, which cited an old cartoon from Robert Grossman in The New Yorker back in 1962. shows an alien crawling through the desert going, Ammonia! Ammonia! The joke being, of course, that, uh, that water may not be the only life-giving liquid in the universe. This article is about how, uh, how aliens don't necessarily have to be based on carbon and water. We recommend it. 
And I was frankly blown away by an article two days ago, which I got off of MSNBC.com, about how uh, scientists have decided that Pluto's moon, Charon, uh, apparently has uh, activity in it where ice is being blown out onto the surface. Analyzing the spectra of Pluto's moon, they determined that cryovolcanism, which apparently uh, relies upon, um, in essence, geysers or volcanoes of ammonia blasting forward and carrying water with it, uh, is resurfacing the moon. This is This shows what progress we're making in in instruments looking into space it was only a couple decades ago that we realized that pluto even had a moon now our instruments are so good we're able to assess what the surface of uh, of the moon is like it's amazing of course there's a lot of suspicion that neptune's moon triton might be quite a bit like pluto and when voyager 2 uh, sped past neptune in uh, 1989 Scientists were stunned to note that there were, in fact, giant geysers blasting, you know, uh, I, I think tens of kilometers up into the, uh, the sky of the moon, uh, again, by this mechanism of cryovolcanism. Most of you are familiar with liquid nitrogen. It's very cold. You can use it to burn off warts. Uh, perhaps you've had that done. Uh, I know it's something like 180 degrees uh, below zero, something like that. And, of course, if you're on the moon where things are very cold, but you get it uh, heated up to that temperature, then, of course, it acts like uh, boiling water here on Earth. It's really cool stuff. And uh, in other news related to moons in the solar system, we have the following. This is from the feedback section of a recent New Scientist. Would you like to know what Deep Purple sounds like playing on Saturn's moon Titan? Well, the band hasn't been there, but physicist Andy... Petkolescu at the University of Louisiana Lafayette and mechanical engineer Richard Lupatow of Northwestern University in Illinois have developed a model that predicts the acoustic properties of gas mixtures. They then played the opening bars of Deep Purple's classic track, Smoke on the Water, through filters that mimic the different conditions of the atmosphere on Earth, Mars, Venus, and Titan. Said the scientist, the track sounds best on Titan which has a nitrogen-methane atmosphere thicker than the Earth's, making the music magnificently loud with a rich, thumping bass. And uh, that's how smoke on the water would sound if you were listening on Titan, Saturn's moon. All right, speaking of space things, it turns out that uh, right here in my neighborhood, and of course, Radio Parallax is a community-based radio program, but my neighbor... Used to work at Aerojet. We got talking a couple of weeks back, and we are talking about Yuri Gagarin. And I thought when it came time to celebrate the anniversary of the moon landing, which is tomorrow, July 20th, we'd bring Lino Carollo on to talk about uh, what they did over at Aerojet, which was actually to build the third-stage rocket motors that actually carried uh, the spacecraft out of Earth orbit and over into the orbit around the moon. Therefore, let me welcome to Radio Parallax my neighbor, Lino Carollo. Thank you very much. You know, we, uh, we should mention that we talked in previous shows about how tomorrow ought to be a national holiday, July 20th, the date of the moon landing, but it isn't. Uh, I'm sure that you're, you think we should do that, too. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we should, I don't know if people know this, but uh, Aerojet was prominent in the building of the rocket motors that helped get us to the moon, and specifically, I believe, the, the third stage motor. You are correct. In fact, uh, I worked at Aerojet at the time that 
and we did build that uh, engine there. Yeah, I'm holding a, holding a model in my hand that shows that uh, that part that actually left the Earth, went to the moon. It's the part, I think, in the Apollo 13 movie where they see that it's blown out the side. Uh, that was part of, the, um, part of the third stage. You are correct. So is this, is this whole thing the, the, the motor, or is it just the, the little the, the parabolic part on the back? Well, the, the parabolic part of the back is basically what we did out at Aerojet. Uh-huh. But uh, also we had uh, another engine called the Nerva, which later on really affected the return of the astronauts back to Earth. Without the Nerva, those astronauts would uh, still be in space. So it was the Nerva the one they fired to get the right to get the right angle so they'd enter the Earth's atmosphere. Correct. What happened was that what after they discovered the uh, blast up, there wasn't any point. The point of no return was gone. They had to go to the moon, and they had to go to the moon because the gravity of the moon would suck the uh, spacecraft in. Then they would have to go in back of the moon, and then have a clear shot at Earth. Well, the only thing they had left at that time was Nerva, which we built out at Aerojet. And in our department, our section, we kept records of how many firings uh, that engine took. And it was 3,000 firings. At that time, I was laid off at Aerojet due to the uh, war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I was working out at McClellan Air Force Base. One day, my supervisor called me into the office and told me that the FBI wanted to talk to me. Okay. And I said, what did I do? Did I break anything? And they said, well, this was for national security. Mm -hmm. And so I went in, and the FBI asked the same information that I'm going to give to you. How many firings did your section keep? And we said 3,000. And how many were successful? 3,000. And then I remember General George Vanneman Jr. Uh, stated uh, to us uh, fellows a long, long time ago, if we ever got into any trouble, all we need is 3,001 to bring the boys back or whoever was out there. Well, his prophecy came true. Now, th this, was the, this was, they were asking this because Apollo 13 was crippled, right? Correct. Ah. And it, it was approaching the moon, uh -huh. and they have to go in back of the moon. We never see the back of the moon. Mm -hmm. And then it was to get out of the moon's gravity right. system. Because otherwise it would, it would go orbit in orbit around the moon, and their idea was, let's, let's not orbit, let's get the hell back. Right. Yeah. Just get the hell, pardon me, get the hell <laughs> back and go straight home. Right. Well, we don't have a lot of time today to talk, Lena, but you'll have to come back and tell us more stories. But I do know that at some point the astronauts did come visit you guys out at Aerojet. Yes, we had uh, two of the original astronauts, uh, Grissom and Cooper, and a young astronaut named uh, Borman. Frank Borman. Frank Borman. Later of and Apollo 8. everyone knows what happened to Frank Borman. They were very intellectual, polite gentlemen. And they were fun to be around, particularly uh, Gus Grissom. Uh, <laughs> he was sort of a happy-go-lucky character. Uh, Grissom, of course, was the second man suborbital flight. The, the Liberty spacecraft got lost. They recovered it recently from 10,000 feet off the bottom of the Atlantic, which is a hell of a story. And we thought at that particular time that the, uh, the press treated him in a negative way.
the window did explode, and Grissom did not tell a lie. Yeah. And later on, we found out that he was telling the truth. But he was never recognized for telling the truth. Yeah, and they then, weren't of sure, course, yeah. everything was played against him. And uh, it didn't pan out the way he thought it would, should pan out until recently, like you said. Interesting, because there was a big deal when they when he lost the capsule. Did he cause something to make it sink? Did he blow the explosive bolt? There was a big, and he says he always denied it. He was correct. He ne he never touched anything because yeah. the uh, little time that we had with Gus Grissom out at Aerojet, we knew that the astronaut was telling the truth at that particular time because it could happen. It could happen that those boats could explode on their own, and that's sure. exactly what happened. All right. I remember there's a, I'm sure you read uh, The Right Stuff, Lino. There's a, there's a very great story in there where Gus Grissom is being given a tour of facilities like yours. Maybe it was yours. I don't know. But uh, he was given a tour of some, some of the manufacturers of the rocketry material. And they asked him to give a speech, and he was really stuck for what to say. So he went up to the microphone, looked it over at the crowd, and said, do good work. <laughs> Which, of course, the crowd went wild. Because, yeah. obviously, he needed them to well, do good work. Well, he said it a little different for us. He said, I hope you are not the lowest bidder on this project. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lito, thanks so much for, for speaking with us. And come again, because there's a lot of stories I'm sure you've got about Aerojet, and we want to tell them. Thank you very much for having me. And don't forget, it should be a national holiday. Well, we agree. National Moon Landing Day or something like that. July 20th. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Write your congressman. Which one? And uh, finally, in answer to our true or false question at the top of the show, yes, a pistol will fire underwater. And if you don't believe us, check with the people at Mythbusters. They tested it, and it happens. Trust us. All right, and our final, I guess it's a science item to close today's program. Uh, we note some recent research done by psychologists Andrew Gallup and Gordon Gallup at State University of New York at Albany into the great mystery of why it is we yawn and why they are contagious. Now, it's curious that previous research by these same people noted that, that chimpanzees were also found to be able to spread yawns from one to the other contagiously. They've attributed this to, to the fact that apes are, are able to understand the minds of other apes, as are some people. But what is the purpose of the yawn? Uh, people have debated about this for years. One popular theory imagined that a big gulp of air was meant to boost oxygen levels. But they tested that in the lab, and it didn't seem to hold up. So now they've just, the latest research suggests that a yawn apparently provides a rush of cool air, which cools the brain and keeps it alert. Apparently over in Albany, they, uh, they tested this theory by asking volunteers to watch a video of people yawning. Though some people mimicked the yawn, those who held an ice pack to their forehead were cured of the urge. Also, apparently, people who breathed exclusively through their nasal passages were also immune. And I must say, I'm, I'm not impressed by the finality of this data because <laughs> you then have to ask the question of, why do you need a cool brain? Noted researcher Gordon Gallup, uh, brains operate more efficiently when cool. 
and yawning enhances brain function. According to our hypothesis, he said, rather than promoting sleep, yawning should antagonize sleep. In support of this, Robert Provine of the University of Maryland noted that paratroopers report yawning before they jump, adding that yawning signals a transition between the behavioral state of wakefulness and sleepiness. Also, apparently, boredom to alertness. All I can say is, I think it's uh, time to end the show. I'm so tired I haven't slept a wink I'm so tired My mind is on the blink This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Our thanks today go to Floyd Landis, who joined us on his book tour from San Diego, as well as my neighbor, Lino Carollo. Lino spent many years working for Aerojet General Corporation here in Sacramento, helping them build the rocket motors that got us to the moon. We'll see you next week at the same time.